Well, for this um, morning's chapel and continuation of our, our uh, session on, on preaching to a changing world, um, I want to begin with a story. And the story begins by letting you know that I am 55 years old. Turn to your neighbor and says, he doesn't look 55, and respond, and also with your spirit. Um, yes, I am 55 years old. Uh, there's a phrase uh, in the U.S., black don't crack. I'm going to teach you a new one, Asian don't raisin. We age, <laughs> we age well. Um, but when I turned 50 years old, I made a determination that this is the decade I'm going to get into physical shape. This is the decade I'm going to exercise and get healthy. I made that same promise when I turned 40. It didn't happen. So this was really the decade that I was going to get physically fit. So I'm an academic researcher, and I did what academic researchers do. I got to research this topic. So I used the academic researcher's number one tool. You might have heard of it. It's called Google. So I go on Google, and I type in, what's the best way to keep fit? And the answer pops up, uh, CrossFit. Have you heard of this? CrossFit, the exercise system? Um, I haven't done it, but apparently, according to Google, it's a great exercise system. So CrossFit, I found out. Uh, uses a philosophy called muscle confusion. And as soon as I saw that, I said, that's the program for me because I've been doing muscle confusion my entire life, uh, which means that I don't go to the gym for months, and when I go to the gym, my muscles are really confused why we are there. They get really angry and hard. So that's how I figured out how I was going to do muscle confusion. Now, as I began to explore CrossFit, which I never did, um, my daughter now works for Orange Theory, so she's trying to get me into Orange Theory to try to lose weight. And uh, we actually ended up climbing Kilimanjaro together a few years ago. And that actually did get me into an exercise regimen. Uh, but as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, okay, if there's a pathway to physical fitness, and that pathway to physical fitness requires confusion, in other words, a disruption, that growth and change doesn't happen unless you have a discomfort or dissatisfaction with the status quo, and that that disruption and dissatisfaction leads you to change. Uh, Richard Sennett, a NYU professor, put it this way, without a disturbed sense of ourselves, why would any of us ever change? And to me, that felt like, oh, that's what discipleship is. Discipleship is a disturbed sense of ourselves. Now, we might feel comfortable and safe in the church, but there should be times when the church makes us feel discomfort so that we want to change or we need to change. And as I was kind of thinking through this, I was at that time working on my commentary in the book of Lamentations and realized that the spiritual health that we can actually come to because of a disturbed sense of ourselves, because of discomfort or disruption, wasn't happening in the church and that our spiritual, lack of spiritual disruption and discomfort was actually making us complacent, and it was not cause, uh, a good place for spiritual growth. And one of the ways that, again, was, I was noticing this as I was looking at my book was the fact that we were not good uh, or that there was a, a profound absence of the uh, spiritual practice of lament. Lament as a spiritual practice was conspicuously ab absent in our church. Um, I first noticed this uh, when I, know, when I uh, thought about worship life in the church. And there was um, an Old Testament professor in uh, Wesley Seminary by the name of Denise Hopkins, and she's an expert in uh, Old Testament poetic literature. 
And she, uh, at a Methodist seminary, she was looking at the more liturgical traditions uh, in North America. So she was looking at the Catholic Church, the Anglican Church, the Lutheran Church, Methodist Church, churches that are oftentimes guided by particular texts, a book of prayer, etc., a book of worship, that says, on this day, you should preach from this text, uh, you should read this psalm, and, and maybe even sing this hymn. And what she discovered in her research is that these liturgical traditions which said, read this lament psalm on this Sunday, when it came time to read the lament psalms, many of the uh, North American churches would say, nah, it's too sad. And they would replace that lament psalm or a lament passage or a lament hymn with a happier psalm or a happier hymn. And uh, she was finding that this was a pattern of behavior in the liturgical tradition, again, guided by liturgy, they still, when it came time to lament, would skip it. It was another study done by Greg Pemberton. And he was looking at those who were doing worship through kind of the traditional hymns. And he especially looked at the Baptist and Presbyterian traditions of worship that focused on the hymnals. And he noted that in the Baptist and Presbyterian hymnals, uh, 85%, 80 to 85% of the hymns in the hymnals are hymns of celebration and triumph. And only about 15% of the hymns were hymns of lament and suffering. Now, compare that to Scripture. We know that the Psalms are a reflection of the worship life of Israel. And we find in the 150 Psalms that 60%, give or take, are Psalms of celebration and victory and triumph. But 40% of the Psalms are Psalms of suffering and lament. So compare that 60-40 mix to the 85-15 mix now, by, that, by the way, is what's in the hymnals. It doesn't mean that's what you sing on Sunday. That's just what's in the hymnals. It's already disproportional. So I decided to do a study on uh, CCLI. Some of you know what CCLI, it stands for Christian Copyright Licensing Incorporated. It's good to know that God's music is incorporated. So CCLI, uh, what they do is they actually keep track of songs that are not printed in hymnals, but songs that you project on the screen like we did today. So uh, oftentimes when you do that at a church or a Christian gathering, there's a little number that you're supposed to put at the, at the bottom, CCLI number, and there's like six digits that you put on it. And actually, when you do that in church and you have that license, you're supposed to actually uh, email or something. You, you call in and you let them know we sang these songs on Sunday. Why do they do this? Well, they need to keep an accurate record of the songs that are sung because through the licensing, every time you sing one of these songs, an angel gets his wings and somebody gets like a quarter of a penny. So that's what happens with CCLI licensing. So actually, they have to keep a very accurate record of the songs that are sung uh, using the CCLI license. So every year in August, they publish the top 100 most popular contemporary Christian worship songs that are sung all over North America. So um, I went through that list several years ago, and I went through every lyric of every song of that top. No, I made my TA read every lyric <laughs> That's what TAs are for, okay? I made my TA read, I checked his work. I, I, he went through every lyric of every song, and I asked him, so what percentage of the top 100 contemporary Christian worship songs would qualify as a lament song? So how many of you say, just like in the Bible, that 40% of our top 100 songs are songs of lament? Our 40 contemporary, how about 25% of our top 100 contemporary, how about, how about 20%, how about, do I hear 15%, do I hear 10%, do I hear, well yeah, uh, somewhere between 5 and 10, 
out of the, it depends on the categories of lament I use. And I try to be as generous as possible. The song goes, I cry out, hallelujah, a lament song. Uh, the rest of it is, I cry out for joy. No, I, I still have to count it. This is so pathetic. So about five to 10 out of the top 100 most popular contemporary Christian worship songs are what we would call songs of lament, which means that 90 to 95% of the songs that we sing in our, in our, in our church are songs of, of victory and triumph. So what does that do when you practice that all the time? Now think about, for example, even the sermon series, right? How many of you have heard uh, uh, an entire sermon series on the book of Lamentations? Not that one, one positive verse in the entire book of Lamentations, yes? You've all heard that one. But have we heard an entire sermon series on the book of Lamentations? That's about right. Zero out of <laughs> 100 people or so. That's about right. Which is why I wrote a book on Lamentations because, you know, it's the academic dream to spend five years in a book and sell zero copies. Uh, so you have this book of the Bible and the genre of Christian uh, uh, scripture, that is oftentimes ignored. And very much so in the Western church, we ignore lament. And again, the question is, what happens to a community? What happens to a church? What happens to the family of believers when we ignore this entire category of a spiritual discipline? Brueggemann argues that what happens is that we lose our sense of God's justice because we don't understand there is injustice. Lament is the spiritual practice that brings attention to injustice. Lament is the snapshot of a broken social reality, of how broken the world is, and you realize you can't do anything about this, so you turn to God and say, God, we need your justice to come in to this place of injustice. Our sense of longing for God's justice gets lost, because we don't lament the reality of injustice in the world. And this is, goes back to what we said in our earlier session. Lament, therefore, is the appropriate counter-narrative to the dominant narrative of triumphalism, exceptionalism, and the, the kind of narratives that pushes towards a particular way of doing church, but not embracing the full breadth of what God is doing in the church. Lament is the counter-narrative that we desperately need. Let me, let me say a few words about counter-narrative. We talked about the power of narratives in our first session. So think of the narratives in this way. Uh, I'm a city kid. I've lived in cities all of my life. But I have heard that if you go to the farm, they have these huge tractor trailers. And I've, I've seen them in pictures. And they're li larger than people, right? These huge tractor trailer tires are massive. So think of a tractor-trailer tire, just a tire, it's emptied out, and it's at the top of a hill. Um, and you are in the middle of the hill. And at the bottom of the hill is your pet, your pet cat, your pet dog. And you see the tire rolling down the hill. And your initial instinct is you've got to stop that tire from harming your pet. So you, the individual, the heroic individual, the great individual preacher, the sing, you're going to single-handedly stop that tire from, from crushing your pet, and you stand there and say, I will, ah, and then you get rolled over. And it goes on and, and, and hurts your pet. So you as the individual can't stop it. So you say, wait, i got to try another way. I know, I'm going to try this way. I'm going to jump into the system of the tire, 
and I'm going to stop the tire by working in the system. I'm going to uh, uh, reverse the system. And you get in the tire, and you're, you're fighting and fighting, but the momentum of the tire is so strong, you get caught up in the system. And in fact, you end up adding more weight to the system. And now the tire is moving even faster down that hill. So we've tried the individual transformation. We've tried maybe even a social structural transformation. How do you stop that narrative from becoming the dominant narrative and crushing everything in sight? You create a counter momentum. You create a counter narrative. And in the creation of the counter narrative, you are challenging the ex existing dysfunctional narrative. And again, that is what Lamentations is calling us to do, to cry out as a counter-narrative to the existing narrative. So I want us to take a look at the book of Lamentations, and we'll set up the historical context of Lamentations uh, as it is explained in the first three verses of the book of Lamentations. Chapter 1, verse 1. How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she, who once was great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. So you might recognize the historical context of why Lamentations was written. Most of you know the story. Uh, in, in the early stages of Israel's history, under two great kings, David and Solomon, Israel becomes a superpower. David is a great military leader and expands the borders and boundaries of Israel. Solomon is a great economic leader and he's able to uh, increase the wealth of Israel. Uh, but after David and Solomon follows very, a number of, 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 of kings uh, who drift away, uh, who are disobedient, does not obey the, the laws of Yahweh, uh, begin to follow other idols, uh, the kingdom is split, and uh, this generation after generation of idolatry and disobedience and sinfulness, and God needs to bring judgment upon Israel, and that judgment, of course, is the uh, destruction of the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, and eventually uh, the capital city of Jerusalem. And that's what's being described here. The city of Jerusalem, once so full of people, uh, the place where there was this magnificent temple and beautiful palace and people from all over would come and marvel at the city of Jerusalem with its uh, 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 structures and buildings and walls. And uh, it was once great among the nations, queen among the provinces, but because of their idolatry and disobedience, they are now deserted like a widow and has now become a slave. So bitterly she weeps at night. Tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, there is no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. This once great nation is now a fallen and broken nation, broken people. And after affliction and harsh labor, Judah has gone into exile. And as many of you know, exile would have been the ultimate punishment for the people of God. You talk about all the other things that happen, exile is the final ultimate punishment for the people of God. She dwells among the nations. She finds no resting place. All who pursue her have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. What we see here is the end of, in, in their minds, the end of the story for this great nation of Israel. They've lost their leaders. Uh, all the literate and all the uh, young men, like Daniel and his friends, they're all taken away into exile into Babylon. The only ones left in Jerusalem are the widows, the orphans, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and the sick. And they're not capable of rebuilding the city to its once great height. So this is the moment, and one could argue this is absolutely the lowest moment in Israel's history. They've lost everything, their identity, their homeland, their leaders, uh, everything that made them the, the unique. All of those things were taken away. And it is into this context that lamentations is, is the word that is spoken. 
Because in this context, there are several responses, but I want to focus on three things that Israel could have done, or God's people could have done in this context. One, run away and hide and give up. And second, well, we lost, so let's just do what the, the, those who defeated us do. We'll give in. So give up, or give in, or lament. Those are the three choices that are before the people of God. Run away and hide, give up, adapt the ways of those that have conquered us, give in, or offer a lament and trust in Yahweh's sovereignty. To that first question, should we give up? Should we run away and hide? Jeremiah writes to the exiles in chapter 29. This is what the Lord Almighty God of Israel says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters and increase in number there. Do not decrease. And this is the kicker. Also, seek the peace, the shalom, and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. The key phrase there, of course, is seek the peace. And almost every other time in Scripture you see the phrase, seek the peace, and a city is attached to it, it's seek the peace of Jerusalem. That's obvious. Jerusalem, David's city, the capital of the promised land, God's heavenly city, the city of God's peace. Of course, you seek the peace of Jerusalem. This is one of the very rare occasions where it says what? Not seek the peace of the city of Jerusalem, but seek the peace of the city to which I have carried you into exile, which would be Babylon. And think of the craziness of saying, seek the peace of Babylon. Again, Jerusalem, David's city, the capital of the promised land, all the good things that are associated with the city of Jerusalem, the temple of Yahweh, all those things. But now you want us to seek the peace of Babylon? Babylon is Hollywood and Las Vegas and the worst parts of Toronto. Oh, I'm sorry. The worst parts of Vancouver all rolled into one. That's Babylon. And you want us to seek the peace not of Jerusalem but of Babylon? It wouldn't have made sense to the people of God. So what's, what's Jeremiah saying? Yahweh is saying to the prophet Jeremiah, you can be and you are in the absolute worst place imaginable. You are in the pit of in the mouth pit of hell. That's Babylon, according to the people of God. You're in the absolute worst place where you think God doesn't actually extend that far out into Babylon. And even in that worst, most awful place that you can imagine, God still says, you are still my people. I am still your God, and you still seek me, and you still seek my shalom. You are never allowed to give up, no matter what those circumstances might be. Not the people of God. You can be the people of God in Jerusalem, but you are also the people of God in Babylon. Unfortunately, this has not been the history of the church throughout the church's history. And I want to focus on a particular moment in U.S. church history, but you'll see this in kind of other settings as well. In U.S. church history, there was this narrative very early on that urban centers were great places. In fact, there was this idea that was in the U.S. called um, like uh, cities like Boston. These are cities set on a hill. Have you heard that phrase? It was actually said by one of the first governors of Massachusetts. 
He comes from, the, uh, from the Europe to across the, the ocean, and he sees at the Massachusetts Bay, he looks over what will become the great city of Boston, and he says, I envision a city set on a hill, which is what? A new Jerusalem, a new Zion in the new world. And that was a positive perception or anticipation of what the cities of North America could be. Now, I spent many years in Boston, and Boston takes that very seriously. There is actually a major road that bisects the entire city of Boston. It's called Beacon Street. One of the major neighborhoods, the key neighborhoods, wealthiest neighborhoods actually, is called Beacon Hill. So there's this kind of self-perception that these cities, especially on the east, uh, east coast of the United States, they're going to be cities set on a hill where the gospel message will radiate out and be a light to the entire world. And so there was an idea, an assumption, New Jerusalem, New Zion for the cities on the East Coast. However, that narrative changes over several hundred years. That was the dominant narrative in the 17th, 18th, and about halfway through the 19th century. And then what happens in the 19th and 20th century is massive changes occur in these cities. So up until that time, they were centers for white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. There were German Lutheran churches, and there were Scottish Presbyterian churches, and British Anglican churches. So the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants were the dominant people group in these urban centers, and the belief was the gospel will go forth out of these urban centers. However, the cities began to change at a certain point, and a new wave of immigration occurs. That wave of immigration is not white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. It's not Northern European or Western European. It's Southern European. And you're getting Greek Orthodox and Italian Catholics. And it's Eastern European. And you're getting Slavic and Russian Jews. And all of a sudden, these urban centers that were supposed to be a city set on a hill, New Jerusalem where the light of the gospel goes out, they're no longer considered Jerusalem. They are Babylon. They are Babylon. And I remember watching this movie, uh, Gangs of New York. And, um, you know, I write about race quite often. And somebody told me, oh, you got to see this movie. It's about a race war in New York. Cool, I got to read about this. So I watched this movie, and it stars um, Daniel Day-Lewis, the whitest guy in Hollywood, and Leonardo DiCaprio, the second whitest guy in Hollywood. And they're beefing with each other. I'm like, what is this? This is not a race war. But it turns out that the old European immigration was opposed to the new European immigration that the Western and Northern Europeans didn't like the influx of Southern and Eastern Europeans. And so there was this perception, our cities are changing. It's no longer the city set on a hill, the New Jerusalem, New Zion, but it is now the um, uh, uh, Babylon. Uh, you see some of this in the language that's being used by historians. Uh, in the feverish imagination of antebellum, anti-Catholic literary provocateurs, city neighborhoods appeared as caves of rum and Romanism. That's so descriptive. Rum and Romanism. They're, they don't drink good, you know, Western whiskey. They're drinking exotic rum. <laughs> they're, they're not good Protestants. They're, they're, they're Catholics. So they were mysterious and forbidding a threat to democracy, Protestantism, and virtue alike. And it begins a whole new way of depicting the city as the vicious destroyer of the common good of family life and individual character. And so that the cities were no longer Jerusalem, the cities were now Babylon's. Uh, this was also happening because of another form of migration in the United States called the Great Migration. 
And it wasn't just immigration from Europe that was changing. There was more of an internal migration, and that was the movement uh, post-Civil War of African Americans from the Deep South to the northern and midwestern cities. So you start getting those who lived in the plantations in Carolina moving up to Baltimore, New York, Philadelphia. And those who were living in the uh, deep south in Alabama and Mississippi going up the Mississippi River to places like Chicago and Cleveland and Detroit. And all of a sudden, again, these cities that had been dominated by white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, you start getting neighborhoods that overnight change from all white to almost all black. And that, again, feeds into the narrative hey, this city is no longer safe for us. This city's too different. Now, the irony, of course, is that the group that's moving from the south to the north is the most Christianized group ever, African-American churches. So it's believed that about 80% of the African-American community converts officially. There were Christians on the plantations, but they join churches and become officially Christians once there's Emancipation Proclamation. Within a gener- generation, the Mississippi Delta African-American Christian community gets to about 80 to 85% African-American Christians within one generation. That's the group that moves up to these northern cities like Detroit and Chicago, and that's the group that start the very first mega churches in North America. People think, oh, it's Hybels and, uh, and, and uh, um, uh, Saddleback. No, no, that, that's really, really much later in the history. Oh, no, it may have been Amy Semple McPherson. No, no, also much later. The first megachurches in North America were African-American churches of thousands and two thousands and three thousands in these urban centers in Detroit, in Chicago, Cleveland, Baltimore, New York, and Philadelphia. So you're beginning to see the cities beginning to change, Migration and immigration is changing what the city looks like. And so the narrative of the city also begins to change. Does that sound familiar? Because the city of Toronto was a great place and it was safe when it was mostly European Americans. But now you've got refugees moving in. Now you've got communities of immigrants moving in. And instead of seeing that as the move of God, people began to see that as, well, the cities aren't Jerusalem anymore. They're Babylons. Now, in the U.S., what happened was it actually led to some significant changes in the church life that was reflected in the architecture of churches in the United States. So in 1945, right after World War II, uh, $26 million was spent on church buildings in the entire U.S., new buildings. Now, if you see some of the budgets of churches now, that's one church that would spend $26 million on one church building. Now, again, to scale, but 15 years later, that number shoots up to $1 billion. So in 15 years, you see a $974 million increase in spending on new churches, a 38.5% times increase. That's 3,850% increase over 15 years. Whatever those numbers are, it's, it's, it's astronomical how much change there was and how many new church buildings were going up. Now, the question is, what was happening? What was happening was that uh, white Protestants were leaving urban centers and moving to the suburbs and starting and building new church buildings in the suburbs right after World War II. And one of the things I noticed was the architecture of many of the church buildings that were built in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. So I saw this. Now, this is one of the most beautiful buildings I've ever seen. I've never seen this style of architecture before. Uh, what I've seen more often are, are architecture that looks like this, of buildings built in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. 
Um, the slanted roof, a little bit of an arch on the side. It's kind of buttressing that you can see. Pretty common form of architecture in North America. Uh, this, is not real. this is more European style. This is more uh, North American style of architecture. And again, if you see a building like this, a sanctuary like this, probably built in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Now, I was uh, in the late 70s. My church built a, a sanctuary that looked like this. I'm about nine years old. And I walk into that building on a January day, and I'm thinking, this is the stupidest thing I have ever seen. Whose stupid idea was it to build the building that looks like this? I'm nine years old, and I'm smart enough to know this is a really bad idea. Why? Because I was living on the East Coast in a cold-weather city. It's the middle of January. And so what that means is that the heat is on, but where's the heating vents? On the floor. And where does the heat go in a building that looks like that? Right up into the rafters. And you literally have the frozen chosen in the pews and all that warm air up in the rafters. And then you have to build ceiling fans to push the warm air down. And then charismatics can't worship with you because they keep hitting their hands on the ceiling fans. So you've created an architecture that doesn't make any sense. As a nine-year-old, I knew this is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. I'm thinking, whose idea was it to build a church like this? The senior pastor gets up and says, it was my idea to build a church building to look like this. And he says, if you turn this church building upside down, what do you see? He says, you're looking at the bottom of a boat. You're looking at the hull of a ship. And where in the Bible do you read about a really big ship? What is it about a really big ship? And we said, well, it's Noah's Ark. Now, Think about the message the church sends to the world when you declare yourself to be Noah's Ark. We don't care about what's going out there. Yeah, let them be destroyed and, and judged and flooded and, and, you know, they deserve it. As long as we are safe in Noah's Ark. We don't care about what's going on. We just want to be safe in Noah's Ark. So let the world have their evil secular colleges. We'll have our Christian colleges. Let the world have their evil secular schools. We'll have our Christian schools. The world has their evil secular t-shirts. We'll have Christian t-shirts. Evil secular art, Christian art. Evil secular music, not so good, mediocre Christian music. So we'll have a Christianized version in this little ark that we'll be safe and comfortable with. And we don't really care about the world that is out there. And so we sent a message that we were going to run away and hide. We were going to run away and hide. An interesting thing happens, though. At that trend is, is, is cresting, another trend begins to emerge that reflects the next phase of this, which is not to run away and hide, but to give in to the systems and structures around us. Not to give up, but to give in. Not to look down and say, oh, we've lost, but to look around and say, how can we better fit in? And in Jeremiah 29, verse 8 through 9, this is the challenge that comes up. This is what the Lord says to Israel, uh, God of Israel says, Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. So in this case, you see the actually very intentional using of the word diviners. Divination was a specifically Babylonian practice. And the Babylonian practice of divination and the idolatry of the Babylonians, that's the temptation for God's people in exile. And Jeremiah says, do not give in to the temptation to do what the people around you are doing, which is idolatry and divination. So what was it about idolatry? Idolatry works as a temptation because it works. Idolatry is like a vending machine. You go up to a vending machine, you put in your loony, yeah, what is that what that's called? You put in your three loonies and you punch a number 
and you get exactly what you asked for, right? If you punched in the number for Diet Coke, a Diet Coke better come out. If it's Mountain Dew, you call that 800 number and say, hey, I want my Mountain Dew. I get very upset. I put the three loonies in there. I didn't get what I wanted. Because vending machines have a certain set of rules. And that's exactly how idolatry works. You go to an idol and say, I want good crops this year. I want a male you know, uh, child this year. And, you, and the priest says, well, give the following sacrifices, etc., and you will get that. So idolatry in its logic actually makes sense. And that's the temptation, to give in to the logic of idolatry. Because idolatry operates like a vending machine, but God most definitely does not operate like a vending machine. See, if God were a vending machine, then we would be praising God every single moment of our lives. Because we would ask for a new car, and we would get it, and we would jump up and down for praise. We would ask for more people in the church, we would get it, and we would jump up and down for praise. So idolatry moves us towards this assumption that everything's going to work out exactly the way we want it to do. Unfortunately, that's not how Yahweh worship works. Idolatrous worship works, you give praise for what get because you got something exactly you wanted. Worship of Yahweh is sometimes it doesn't quite work out that way. That again is more lament than it is the celebration and triumph and victory. So in many cases what you began to see is the mainstreaming of uh, the church in North America. Instead of seeing ourselves as Noah's Ark, which has some level of dysfunction, we began to see ourselves as part of the culture in the almost extremely dysfunctional ways. And we began to adapt, even in the architecture, of, of churches that look like centers for entertainment. Uh, I was at a, a church in, uh, in the South, in Virginia, and uh, the uh, associate pastor has given me the tour of the church. And I'm walking in, and there's the visitor center, and there's a waterfall, and there's like fake trees growing up into the, the ceiling. Um, and I'm looking around, it's like, wait, there's the, there's the little coffee shop, there's the little record store, or record store, I told you how old I am. <laughs> there's the little, uh, you know, places where they sell CDs and T-shirts, and there's a place, the little uh, kid's playground. I said, I think I'm at a mall. I feel like I'm at a mall. And at the end of that hallway, there's an auditorium where the entertainment venue exists. And so we began to build our churches, our sanctuaries, our architecture began to reflect being of the world. And so the, the picture there on your right is, uh, is actually a, a photo from a church catalog, a church furniture catalog. And all that's missing is the popcorn tray and the little drinks and the little button that moves the seat back and forth. But our form of architecture felt more like entertainment venues than it maybe felt like houses of worship. And in that case, we didn't give up, we gave in. And we adapted the patterns of the world. Uh, this is actually an interesting byproduct of this. And uh, this is a theory in sociology called homophily. And homophily basically means birds of a feather flock together. And going through all the kind of the sociological jargon here, it basically means that when people get together, it is easier to get people that are like you or similar to you to join you. And that it's, it makes perfect sociological sense. But what that did is that the church adopted this secular principle. It's used in marketing. It's used in you know, selling products. But the church adopted this secular principle and called it the homogenous unit principle that said we will grow more if we just hang out with people like ourselves. And in fact, some of the church growth books visibly said, here is our target audience. 
This person is the person we want in our church. And it was a white man in his 40s with khaki pants and a golf club in one hand and a cell phone in another hand and a, and a, and a polo shirt. And I said, that's the person we want because of the homophily principle. If we want to grow a church, birds of a feather flock together, we will grow a church if we just get people that are like us. So what the church did was bought into a sociological marketing principle in order to grow the church. We looked around and said, okay, we need to grow the church. What are we going to do? The methodology became, let's use what secular marketing is doing well. Homophily, birds of a feather flock together. And what that led to in the U.S. is extreme, extreme segregation. Uh, this is the work of Michael Emerson, uh, who defines a multi-ethnic congregation of 80% of one group and 20% of another. Very generous statistics, in my opinion. But what he points out is that if you look at those numbers, that the number of multi-ethnic churches is, is absolutely horrendous. So the first study that he does, uh, it's, I know the print is small, we'll try to get these PowerPoints to you, is he looked at the average public schools and how diverse they were and found that they had a diversity index of 0.48, uh, which in, the higher, in this case, the higher the number, the more diverse you are. Then he looked at congregations and found a congregation had a diversity index of 0.08, meaning that local schools were six times more diverse than congregations. So you would go into a neighborhood and you walk into the local elementary school and you'll find extraordinary diversity, 48% diversity. But you walk to the church that is two blocks away and you'll find complete lack of diversity. And so this is what Michael was kind of pointing out and also pointing out that if you look at the most segregated cities in America, the, the local church was more segregated than even the most segregated cities in America. In fact, what he pointed out was that the level of segregation in the United States in the church, uh, conservative Protestant, was so high that it had only been achieved one other time in U.S. history in the Deep South during Jim Crow laws when it was mandated by law that there would be segregation. And homophily principle actually led to the point where there was this level of hypersegregation because we chose to follow the patterns of the world that said, just hang out with people that are comfortable. If you really want to market a church, market a church to this group, and then you'll grow your church. In other words, we celebrated the victory and triumph of society rather than lamenting alongside the heart of God. We chose the easy path of homophily rather than embracing the difficult path of learning from each other's stories and the challenges of learning from each other's story. We do not have the option of running away and hiding and giving up. We do not have the option of giving in and adapting the patterns of those who are the, 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 the society around us, but instead our response is lament. To enter into places of suffering, to hear each other's story of suffering. I'll close with an um, illustration about a, a, a few years ago. I, I, I do a lot of conferences. Uh, when I went from pastor to professor, uh, something, like I went through some kind of genetic phase where the extroverted side of me completely got erased from my mind. I don't know what happened, but something happened. As soon as I put on that doctoral robe, the extroverted side of me just got wrenched out of me. And so I'm, I'm like a, a, almost an extreme introvert these days. And that shows when I go to conferences. When I was a pastor, I go to conferences. I wanted to meet everybody, shake hands with everybody, get everybody's numbers. Now I just want to go somewhere and cry and hide. Uh, so that's my thing about uh, conferences. And I was at this pretty major conference, and, and I just wanted to, to find some place to hide. 
And the reason I wanted to run away was uh, I had been a pastor and I had planted a multi-ethnic church. I planted an urban church and I planted a, a justice-oriented church and that was kind of popular at a certain point. And people would come up to me and ask me questions about that. And I just got sick of the questions because I, it was the wrong question. They would say, how did you do it? What's your secret? How did you make this happen? And they were looking for the magic formula, the vending machine idea that was going to help them grow their church so that I can be a successful multi-ethnic urban church planter too. So I can write the books as well. And so what I would say is, okay, here's the secret to growing a healthy and maybe a a vibrant uh, multi-ethnic urban church. Um, Stop coming to these conferences. (laughs) That's why I never got invited back to these places. Uh, uh, You spend $500 on your airfare. You spend $500 for two nights at the Hyatt. Uh, And you'll spend $500 for registration, and then another $500 for food and incidentals and and all the books that tell you how to do the right formula to grow your church. So you spend $2,000 to be pretty much told what you should already know. You don't need to go to an evangelism conference to learn to not be nice to people. That's not something you should have to pay $2,000 for. You shouldn't go to a conference that says, you know, have clean bathrooms. Yeah, you don't need to pay $2,000 to learn that. Save your money. Here's the secret to a healthy, growing, and, uh, and a spiritually vibrant church. A praying mom. Praying grandmothers and mothers in the church. That's the secret. My mom passed away a couple years ago. She was 88. When she was in her 60s, she showed me the condition of her knees. We all have one kneecap on each knee. She had five kneecaps on each knee. As a single mom working two jobs in inner city Baltimore, one thing she gave as a gift to her children was the gift of prayer. So she knelt before God on a hardwood floor for decades. And when you do that, your knees can't take that kind of pressure. So they cracked open so that when she knelt, her knees would conform to the shape of the floor so she could pray longer. And when I think about going to these conferences where the voice is always the successful 29-year-old who was able to grow the church from this to that by, you know, telling funny stories in church and being a good preacher and trying new things and all that other stuff that we think makes the church grow. And I say at the end of the day, if you don't honor the praying mothers and the grandmothers and the single moms and the immigrant families, those are the ones who are the spiritual bedrock of the church you want to be a part of. That's the lament that the church needs. Gracious God, have mercy on us, for we have sought to be a part of the world when actually you have called us to lament for the world and lament on behalf of the broken in our world. We ask, Lord, for your grace, for your forgiveness, and the tough call to be those who lament, not just those who celebrate, but those who lament alongside those who also suffer. We ask this in your name. Amen.